Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk TV. We're already underway. We've already got lots of stories to talk about. We'll be taking your calls coming up as well. 0344 499 1000. The BBC's coverage of the war in Israel has been nothing short of atrocious. I think we've been talking about it uh, ever since it kicked off. Why on earth uh, are they still not calling Hamas terrorists? Exactly what they are. They are terrorists. Anyway, uh, there's now a flagship Israeli comedy show, Eretz Nehederet, uh, and they've had a pop at the BBC as well. Have a look at this. Good evening from London. Here are some news from the war in Gaza. Israel has bombed a hospital, killing hundreds of innocent people. More, more. Much better. With more details, our Middle East correspondent, Harry Whitegilt. Good evening, Rachel, from the illegal colony of Tel Aviv. I mean, it goes on and on like that, and it is quite incredible that the BBC, the once, you know, uh, well-respected and probably well-relied-upon news source for everything. I mean, I remember being given um, an actual globe by somebody during the time of Glasnost when uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was becoming the new uh, emerging leader of uh, the former Soviet Union. Um, And on it was a quote from Mikhail Gorbachev, and it was a BBC globe, and it said, the BBC knows everything. And in those days, when the BBC said something, it was taken as gospel, it was taken as read. Sadly, uh, it is no longer the case. And I think that comedy skit being made by Israelis, I think it pretty much shows how far the BBC have fallen. I'm delighted now to be joined by former Conservative advisor Leon Emirali. Uh, Leon, welcome uh, to the Independent Republic. Nice to see you. Um, The BBC at the moment seems to be in a very bad place. It seems to be getting everything absolutely and utterly wrong. Mm. Every choice they make seems to be bad. You know, even Jeremy Bowen, who used to be, for me, one of the most reliable correspondents, I think has been to Gaza so many times now, Mm. and he can't see the wood for the trees. Yeah, I think it's quite sad what's happening to the BBC, Mike. I mean, you're right, the BBC is, and and certainly was, an important part of of Britain's sort of soft power. And I think now that it is becoming more unreliable and Mm. it's being seen internationally, that we are just seeing these biases naturally sort of seep into the coverage. I know they work very, very hard to remain neutral, Mm. but sometimes when you do have those deep entrenched uh, viewpoints or feelings, whatever it might Mm. be, that Jeremy Bowen perhaps has, it is naturally going to find its way into coverage that's meant to be impartial, and we're seeing that now. I mean, Jeremy Bowen's a good example of, of, a, of a very brave and very, very well-respected war correspondent who's been doing that job for a very long time. But I've known a lot of these guys. I mean, I only did um, a very, very tiny portion of war uh, corresponding and war reporting uh, when I was a reporter back in the day. Um, and I met a lot of these people. I met, you know, Martin Bell. Mm. Um, and these people, because they've seen so much horrible stuff, yeah. they do become involved in it. You can't fail to become involved in it. And if you keep going back to war zones time after time after time, as Jeremy Bowen has, and this is not a criticism of him, in the end, it's a management decision. You have to say, well, of course, Jeremy Bowen is a great expert, but we've got to be very careful how we use him now, because he has been going in and out of Gaza for so long um, that he's probably 
become sort of immersed in it, if you like. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, his, his point of view is far more sympathetic towards Gaza than it is towards Israel. Yeah. Because the coverage that the BBC has done, I watched Question Time last night. Um, I now watch it more out of curiosity than anything else. And it was in Bradford. Um, and it might as well have been in the Gaza Strip or on the West Bank. I mean, the way that the crowds were sort of whooping every time anybody said anything about uh, a ceasefire solution. Baroness Warsi, I thought, was terrible. Mm -hmm. You know, um, she said her first opening statement was, well, of course, this didn't start on October the 7th. Mm. Huge cheer went up. Mm. You kind of go, hang on a minute, guys. You know, mm. can we not just look back at what actually did happen yeah. on October the 7th? And if the BBC is genuinely trying to be balanced... You know, they should not be, um, every time anyone said anything pro-Israeli, shouted down by members of the audience. Yeah, and it comes back, I think, to the first mistake they made, which was by not calling Hamas a terrorist right. organisation. Right. And I think if they had got that right from the very beginning, we wouldn't necessarily be viewing the BBC through this lens of having this bias. And yeah. I just don't think their justification for why they aren't calling Hamas terrorist group washes with people who look at the footage from the 7th of October and it's very clear what that was, yeah. a terrorist attack. Of and the fact that they haven't had the guts to say that, I think, has, has led to this being just winding up and winding up the right, the wrong people, effectively. And yeah. as you say, question time is becoming a farce. Yeah. Uh, and I think last night's programme, as you say, mm. uh, I didn't watch it, but I saw on Twitter the reaction mm. to it. I mean, it sounds as though that isn't the type of balanced debate no. that we should be getting from the BBC. It really isn't. Tim Davey this week was called before the 1922 committee. He was told by Robert Jenrick, I think, from uh, the Cabinet, uh, that he's never been more disappointed mm. in the BBC. I mean, that is a pretty serious place to be. Mm. I remember back in the sort of 90s when I was working uh, in Fleet Street and there were calls when John Burt was around for the BBC to be kind of, you know, in some way modernised and in some way, you know, run like a proper modern media organisation instead of this old fogey type place. Tim Davey, I think, has got a job that's too big for him. Mm. I don't think he can run it properly. I and mean, we've also seen um, the BBC Arabic um, problem this week mm. or last week where, where individual reporters and, and, and freelance contributors mm. were seen liking tweets in favour not just of Palestine but of the Hamas attack. Mm, yeah, and I think you have to be, if you're in that position, and it's a very privileged position to be able to send out news to you know, the world in the way the BBC has that global audience, mm. I think you do have to be incredibly careful to leave your biases yeah. at the yeah. door because we know, we, we watch the BBC expecting it to be neutral. Yeah. And you know, some channels you watch, you don't expect it to be neutral, mm. others you do, and the yeah. BBC is one of them. And I think when you start to see biases creep in, you then... Aren't sure what. But the BBC's trust. charter, is it not, is is to be neutral. It's not, Absolutely. you know, it's not just a matter of, of following on uh, sort of Ofcom rules. It's an actual charter um, definition mm. that it has to mm. be neutral. And looking at some of the coverage uh, of Israel and even some of the people that have been on Piers Morgan's shows, I mean, we're going to be seeing from uh, Neftali Bennett, the former uh, Israeli Prime Minister, he had a right ding dong um, with Victoria Derbyshire on Sunday mm. when he was being interviewed. He said, "Why are you only asking me about?" Um, what's going on in Gaza? Why not ask me about what's happening in Israel? Mm. She, so, she said, oh, but I've been asking you about the hostages. She says, no, I'm talking about the people that live in Israel yeah. who don't wish to have to be have rockets fired at them every five minutes and who wish to be able to live their lives in peace without worrying about somebody coming in a paraglider with a machine gun. This is the problem, Mike, with this whole conflict, is it's being treated like a football match. It's being treated like a football match where you must pick a side. Yeah. And I think that has now permeated its way through the BBC and other organisations where if you're not Israel, 
then you must be for Gaza. Yeah. And I think that, and, or vice versa. And I think there has to be a sense that this is war. Mm. These are people's lives that we're talking about. We should take an objective and balanced uh, view of things rather than just picking a side, putting a flag in your social media handle, yeah. uh, and that being your contribution to yes. this conflict. But I think the other thing that we've been discovering with the BBC's approach is that also if you do um, try to be too neutral, um, and you're sort of bending over backwards to be neutral, mm. um, thereby not calling terrorists terrorists, mm. then you're not actually being neutral. You're doing a disservice to the word neutrality. But is it is it neutral to not call Hamas terrorists? I mean, no. I think it's just plain wrong. I it's mean, wrong, yeah. because it's not the right... You know, the definition of a terrorist is exactly what they did. Exactly. Therefore, Hamas is a terrorist organisation. Mm. The fact that other people... I mean, I said this the other day to Kevin. You know, it's a bit like the BBC saying... You know, some people call that a car, but we don't. Mm. Uh, but we'll call it a car as long as other people do. Mm. But actually, you know, we're not telling you it's a car. Mm. They that's, say it is. That's the issue here. Right. You can sort of think, if there is a blurred line, mm. if it's a little bit ambiguous as to what something is, then I understand the need to tread quite carefully. Hamas, there is no doubt in what they are, a terrorist organisation. Yeah. We all see it. I mean, it's plain for people right. to see. It's like saying the sky isn't blue. Well, it's like the most other, the other most ridiculous uh, sort of position that's been taken by the Metropolitan Police this week about the word jihad. Mm. You know, and we're probably going to see yet more demonstrations over the weekend. I'm mm. not sure how they're going to handle those. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, after the meeting that took place between Sola Braverman um, and Sir Mark Rowley, presumably the police will have different instructions. Mm. Um, but they were similarly bending over backwards last weekend to say, oh, that's definitely not an ISIS flag, that's just an Islamic faith flag. Mm. Uh, everybody who looked at it thought it wasn't a Hamas flag. Uh, and when they shout jihad, it doesn't necessarily mean holy war. Mm. I mean, it's a joke. It's like, what do you, what do you take us for? <laughs> you know? It's crazy, and I think the fact that that has spilled over onto the streets of London, I think, tells you the, the type of problem we've got with, with, with you know, disharmony in this country right now. Mm. Um, but when you hear the word jihad, you know, okay, it may have multiple meanings, but the overriding meaning of that is associated with terrorism, is associated with violence. And, mm. you know, I think that has to be part of the police's thinking when they look at that and think, well, if someone hears that on the street, are they going to feel intimidated yes. by it? Are they going to feel unsafe if they hear that type of language mm. being used? And if they do, then action should naturally be taken. Yeah. And I think that's where they've got it wrong. Yeah, well, for the police, again, to say, oh, well, this is only a problem if they're demonstrating outside a synagogue, well, therefore, that's a problem, isn't it? You can't just say, oh, the only place Jewish people go is a synagogue. Mm. Uh, they don't go to Piccadilly. I mean, it's just blatantly nonsensical. It's crazy. I've got a, a Jewish friend who said that um, she could hear chanting right. and, and cheering immediately after the 7th of October outside her window mm. in her home. Now, she's in her house mm. feeling unsafe in this country, yeah, yeah. in London. Outrageous. You, you do just sort of think, well, what's the country come to if, we, if people are not feeling safe in their own yeah. homes? And that's a real problem that the police it and Swilla Bravman have to grapple. Let's crap. talk a bit about Keir Starmer because he's found himself uh, in a problematic situation because of his interview that he gave uh, to another radio station uh, a while back. It took him a week to clarify what he meant by saying that Israel had the right, basically... Uh, to have a siege on Gaza mm -hmm. and to not allow any aid or any food or any electricity or any water to go in. Mm -hmm. I've since found out, actually, from Naftali Bennett, that they only stopped 9%. Uh, of Israelis uh, of, of water going into Gaza because 91% of it is, is is produced inside of Gaza anyway. Sadiq Khan, uh, just now, breaking news, by the way, people, uh, has now piled more pressure on Keir Starmer. He said uh, that there should be a ceasefire. Mm. So he's the latest uh, Labour politician. Mm. I think there's 50-odd MPs who are now saying to Starmer, you've got to move your position here. Mm. You've got to call for a ceasefire. Yeah, and I think you can look at uh, Starmer's strengths, actually, over the past, since he became leader, with yeah. rooting out the left, rooting yeah. out the Corbynite left. But you do see still the grip it has on the party in instances like this, where you've got senior members of the party 
at odds with what is effectively the leadership's position on this conflict. And I think that for Keir Starmer, right. he has to now find that balance because what does he do? Right. If he changes his stance now because uh, Sadiq Khan says so and a handful of his MPs are saying mm. so, well, he looks weak. Yeah. Uh, he just looks like he's a flip-flopper, which is one of the key uh, sort of reasons why, yeah. why, why well, they won't I mean, vote for him. Well, I mean, the piece was, was written in the mail the other day, um, I think it was by the editor of the Jewish Chronicle, who basically said this is now a test for Keir Starmer. Mm. What he does now will suggest how, what kind of a leader he could be mm. if he was to become the next prime minister. Yeah, and you might find yourself in a position where you've got the Labour tail wagging the dog, yeah. which is, you know, the membership or the, the sort of uh, elected MPs mm. that aren't in government or some who maybe are in the shadow cabinet, yeah. but they are effectively driving Keir Starmer's mm. policy. Now, that is not a place where the country wants to be because if they can do it on the issue of uh, the Israel and, and Gaza mm. conflict, then they can do it on other issues as well that the country won't, yeah. uh, won't be happy with. Absolutely right. Leon, stay with us uh, if you can, please, because we've got more to talk about. But in case you missed it, Rishi Sunak delivered a speech uh, this week where he outlined the threats and potential of artificial intelligence ahead of a major summit he's planning on the new technology. But the Prime Minister has come under fire for his predecessor, Liz Truss, who's called his decision to invite China to the summit deeply disturbing. Uh, there's all sorts of things that uh, Rishi Sunak could have talked about. He was out in the Middle East, of course, uh, a few days ago as well. Uh, and he's very firm on support for Israel, unlike Keir Starmer, unlike, of course, the EU, unlike France, and unlike an awful lot of our European neighbours. Let's speak to Conservative MP from Wokingham, Sir John Redwood. Sir John, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. I mean, it was a bit odd, I thought, to begin with, to have a sort of uh, announcement that we're going to have some kind of AI safety institute in the midst of uh, what some people regard as the most dangerous world situation that we've had, really, probably since 9-11. Well, <clears throat> I think it was a, a well-intentioned idea, uh, and I do disagree with this trust. I think if you're going to try and get the world talking about AI safety, you need the whole world to be engaged, and China is going to be a very big and serious player in AI. It doesn't mean the government wants to share our best secrets in AI with China or develop them commercially with China. Uh, there's very clearly a strong rivalry between the China-led group and the America-UK-led group over how the digital revolution evolves. But staying in touch with China is no bad thing when you're dealing with matters of safety and security. Yeah. I mean, talking of, of, of the likes of China and indeed Russia today, uh, we've seen that, uh, that Vladimir Putin is trying to stick his oar into uh, uh, matters to do with the Middle East. He's invited Hamas uh, to come over and have some kind of summit along with uh, himself and some Iranian leaders. Um, do you think that's a bit of meddling from Vladimir Putin? Do you think he realises how dangerous that could become? Well, this is the reality of the modern world. I think we all know that Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary have to choose their words extremely carefully and work very closely uh, with America and our other leading allies. Because uh, at the moment, this is a very nasty war between Israel and the Hamas terrorists who, who started it with those brutal attacks. And it's in everybody's interest that doesn't spread, but it, it would be unrealistic to suppose uh, that we, we haven't noticed the, the dangers from Hezbollah and the links to Iran. Uh, and the, the way in which some friends of Iran have now been unsettling uh, American installations in the Middle East. Uh, and so it's very much in our interest that we work diplomatically with America and others to try and contain it, but we have to be realistic about it. Mm. I mean, it looks at the moment as though the US and the UK 
um, are very much the kind of the leaders of you know support for Israel and support for their um, method and their mission uh, to rid the world of Hamas because the European Union um, alongside obviously much of uh, of Europe's individual countries and the United Nations are beginning to call for a ceasefire well they haven't actually called for a ceasefire the EU uh, and I think we and the Americans are also urging, rightly, um, Israel uh, to allow humanitarian aid access to help all those Palestinians uh, living in those very difficult conditions in Gaza who are not Hamas terrorists. And it's very much in everybody's interest that the rules of war apply and that Israel avoids damage to civilians uh, and avoids things that could make the, the conflict more intense when they really do need to target the terrorists, which are understandably the main object of their, their fury. Mm. And what about matters at home, uh, Sir John? Because Leon Amirali here, a former um, uh, Tory advisor from uh, Downing Street some time ago, um, is telling us that, uh, as we know now, there are some uh, Jewish communities in this country who feel unsafe living in Britain. Uh, the weekend's coming up. The police have said that they're going to take a strong line against people um, who are in some way causing breaches of the peace. But we saw what happened last weekend uh, where people were shouting for jihad and nothing happened to them. Some people were waving mm. Hamas uh, flags around and uh, pr pr uh, sort of parading up and down Piccadilly with signs saying that they supported Hamas. I mean, we've got Remembrance Sunday coming up. This is going to be a critical problem um, for policing in, in Britain, isn't it? I'm sure the police will do a good job and they are normally very attentive on uh, these big occasions and clearly remembering the War Dead is, is a very important national event which most people participate in indirectly or directly. Um, and the Home Secretary has obviously had words with, with the police over how you do respond to certain kinds of protests. But we're also a country which wants to keep the right peaceful protest, and there needs to be judgments made by the police. I'm, I'm not involved in that debate, and I don't try and second-guess the police. Uh, but do you think that we should continue to see what we saw last weekend, though? I mean, when we look at uh, some of the activities that were going on. Well, I, I don't know. As I say, it's not my subject. I thought we were going to be talking about artificial intelligence and tax cuts. That's what I came on to talk well, about. Well, we can talk um, about that as well, if you I'm like. I'm not an expert on these other matters, and you've already very exhaustively talked about them before I came on. Well, yeah, but the thing is, they are uh, at the top of every forefront of everybody's mind. I don't think in many... This is why I said Rishi Sunak's plan to launch himself at the AI Safety Institute uh, was a rather ill-timed manoeuvre, and the fact that nobody wants to talk about it would suggest that he's got that one wrong. But I'm happy to talk about tax cuts. I'm also happy to talk about how you've managed to go uh, from an 80-seat majority to 58 in the course of a few years, uh, which has been quite a remarkable snatching of defeat from the jaws of victory, isn't it? Well, let's talk about artificial intelligence. I, I think it's an amazing set of developments. And the thing that I'm worried about uh, is, is Britain going to be represented strongly enough in the commercial and business and innovative opportunities? Because we see at the moment uh, on the Western side of the divide. This is dominated by the big three American players, by uh, Alphabet and Microsoft and Amazon Web Services, and, and they are putting in massive investment to cloud computing, providing all the capacity we and others need for that, and they are now at the cutting edge of these new AI services. And these AI services can give so many people in work and at home and at study uh, uh, an AI supporter or co-pilot or 
assistant which could transform productivity and uh, improve working lives and studying lives in a very dramatic way. So I hope the Prime Minister will not only be interested in the regulation of AI, but will be very interested in how we get the best out of it. I think this is an area where now we've been cut loose from the European Union uh, with freedoms that that brings, that we should use those freedoms so that we can start to grow some of those big companies to be alongside the American giants that are dominating it. Well, this is the other thing. I'll give you an opportunity to link it to your tax story, if you like, John. I mean, if AI was to bring my taxes down, I'd be all in favour of it. Well, of course. And we're sitting on a situation where over the, the three years, 2020 to 2022, uh, according to the official figures, there was a 7.5% collapse in public sector productivity. That's something like a 30 billion extra cost for doing the same things. We've never seen that kind of reversal before. A lot of that is to do with COVID and the changes in working practices and disruptions that cause. But we really need to get back on track. So the first target is to get back to 2019 levels of productivity with that 30 billion bonus that would bring us, giving us more freedom for tax cuts. But then AI would add to that because so many of these civil service functions uh, require plenty of computing already. And if the computer itself can be smart enough to work a lot of the computer functions for you, uh, that should provide huge improvements in productivity in areas best suited to it. Well, it might well do. Uh, great to speak to you, Sir John. Thank you very much indeed. I hope you think you were given enough chance to talk about the things you were meant to talk about. Uh, but there are other matters that sometimes arise. Thank you very much indeed. Have a good weekend. Sir John Redwood there. Uh, Leon Morales here. Um, the trouble with um, some politicians, I don't blame Sir John Redwood there for saying I thought I was going to talk about something else. I take the view that everything's connected. Mm. You know, I take the view that, you know, Rishi Sunak was wrong to choose this week to announce yeah. the AI Safety Institute because nobody gives a monkeys, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Um, and the idea that, you know, we're going to discuss what's going to happen going forward. You know, we're in the midst of a sort of world crisis of, of security, mm. a world crisis of terrorism mm. and a world crisis... Of, of an impending war. Mm. And I'm not over-exaggerating, I'm not over-egging the pudding by saying that. No. Uh, and I think for politicians to sit there after having been 13 years in charge of Britain to say that, oh, here's a new idea we've had, mm. it's just kind of insulting, isn't it? Yeah, I agree with you, Mike, and I think it's a bit concerning, actually, that Sir John didn't have a view on, you know, what is the most pressing issue yeah. in, the, in, the, in the news agenda right now. He, right. Should have, he should have had a view on that, right. regardless of what he was coming exactly. to talk about. But I agree with you. I think you know, AI is vital when yeah. it comes to warfare and it mm. comes to economy and all the rest of it, but it isn't necessarily vital right here, right now. And I think Rishi Sunak should really be focusing on what he's going to do with getting out the 200 Britons that are stuck in Gaza, yeah. in that live conflict zone, right. dealing with the Allies to make sure how we react to uh, America re retaliating with, with bombing Iranian mm. targets in Syria. You know, there's a lot going on. And making on. sure, as you said, that, that British citizens at home feel safe to walk the streets um, regardless of uh, what might happen to them. Absolutely. You know, that is surely the fundamental purpose of government, is to make people feel safe and be safe yeah. in, the, in the country that they pay their taxes yeah. in and that they trust their government to do. So I think that is has to be the most pressing issue of, of the moment. And, you know, this is bad timing for the AI mm. uh, summit. I think, it's, I think it is vital. I think yeah. it really is important. But it's whether or not right now it has the sort of brain space and the right. attention that it deserves, mm. because we've got something going on in the Middle East that, that is, as you say, probably 
probably the biggest yeah. national global security risk right. since yeah, 9-11. Slightly more of a distraction, I think you might say. Mm. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Leonardo Morali there, uh, with his view on the world. The world is a very complicated place. The world is a very connected place as well. That is the whole point. And that's what we do here at the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Make no apology uh, for getting politicians on here and asking them questions they didn't expect me to ask. Sorry about that. After the break, uh, some American universities want to ban calling Hamas terrorists because apparently it could be upsetting to some of them. For heaven's sake, what's going on? How pathetic do you want to get? Don't go away. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV, the home of the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Yesterday, we reported the government were planning to end the use of housing migrants in hotels. Well, um, not exactly. They said they were going to try and move them into less expensive hotels, and then finally they were going to try and process them all uh, to see whether, in fact, we could get rid of some of the people who are here illegally and who should not be given permission to stay. But, of course, the problem is, whatever it is that's going on at the moment is costing you and me, uh, the taxpayer, around eight million pounds a day. Um, and a new parliamentary public accounts committee has found that the government have got actually no credible plan to end the use of hotels at all. So once again, what we've got is Rishi Sunak and the government saying one thing uh, and doing basically bugger all about it. So nothing's going to change. So if you're in a particular part of Rochdale, or if you're in a particular part of Birmingham, or if you're in a particular part of Eastbourne, and next to you happens to be a hotel that's full of migrants, there's a pretty good chance that basically uh, they'll be there same time next year. We know that many people who come here uh, on the small boats get put into hotels and are there for as many as two years at a time before they even get considered to be moved somewhere else. And here with me to talk about that and some of today's other big stories, former Brexit Party MEP and Talk TV presenter, of course, uh, Ms Alex Phillips. Alex, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Now, it will come as no surprise to you that when we asked uh, the viewers of this great station uh, whether the government was doing enough to tackle the asylum backlog, 96% of them said no, absolutely not. You know, the Stop the Boats um, slogan, which Rishi Sunak uh, issued to us uh, back at the beginning of uh, this year, has done absolutely nothing to stop the boats. They've now issued another statement saying they're going to move them out of hotels into cheaper hotels, but it now appears they haven't got a plan for that either. Yeah, I mean, the problem we have more than anything is the fact that even when these people are being processed, a lot of them are going to be granted right to remain because we have such a floppy and porous immigration uh, set of laws that basically you can turn around and say, I'm a homosexual coming from a country where I'm persecuted for being gay. Well, that's about three quarters of countries in the world. I'm coming from extreme poverty. That's 17 billion odd people. I'm connected to people traffickers who want to put me into slavery. I mean, what do you think this route is being used for? And so if the government do expedite the process of these applications, we're just going to see many of them granted the right to remain, which will contribute to a pull factor. What we need to do is get a grip of the situation from the very core and say that the UK simply cannot sustain the numbers of people coming in legally and illegally. We've got to turn the boats around and say, if you come to this country illegally, you will immediately be sent back to France because you're their problem, not ours. And we need to have a real conversation about who these people might be, because of course there are going to be people fleeing conflict zones. We've seen more conflict and unrest in the Middle East as we speak right now. But when people are coming from those areas, you have no guarantee that you're getting the persecuted. You might be importing the persecutors. And a great many people getting on these boats don't share our national values. They don't share our culture. And it's very hard to distinguish, especially 
especially with the interview process where we have, where it's basically, well, give me your word that you're a good person. Give me your word that you're fleeing something dreadful. Give me your word that you're here for the right reasons. It's very difficult to be able to ascertain whether or not what people are telling you is valid, particularly mm. when they throw passports into the sea. It is a security threat, amongst other things. It really is incredible, isn't it? I mean, you and I, Alex, have been talking about this for, for more years than I care to remember. Um, what is it about the government that fi finds them incapable of just getting to grips with something? You know, they've issued all sorts of, you know, um, pathetic attempts to try and fix things. We've had the Rwanda scheme. We've had uh, Priti Patel claiming that uh, she's going to do a deal with the French. We've had uh, US forces, sorry, UK forces sent into the channel um, to patrol it. Navy ships have been in there. Now they've gone. They couldn't do any good. I mean, I find it amazing. I mean, when you and I talk about this, uh, whether we're on air or not, it's not that difficult, surely, to make a difference, is it? They don't seem to be able to do anything. This is what I don't understand. They seem to be constantly very squeamish about what other people might think of them. The tiny percentage of people who think ex-student accommodation is not good enough for an Albanian criminal coming into the country illegally. That in fact, even a hotel room without good internet isn't good enough for someone from the Punjab trying to break into the black market over here here that instead they should be given I don't know um sweets in the Ritz and I, I don't understand where this has come from because when you compare the way we treat people entering the country illegally uh, look at other countries such as Germany they use old army bases they use makeshift accommodation places like Greece and Italy use tents and camps and this is absolutely fine according to UN uh, diktat we are more than able to do that and create mass accommodation and not make it so wonderful that people think, well, this is great. If I come to the UK, mm. I'm going to have a doctor 24 hours a day. I'm going to have three hot meals. I'm going to have pocket money. I'm going to have at least two years to make friends and work out how I'm going to stay here. I mean, I am not saying when people are genuinely fleeing persecution that they should be treated inhumanely. Absolutely not. And I think as a nation, we've always been very, very good at making sure that we take people in from Hong Kong from Ukraine, from Afghanistan, although that particular process was an absolute disaster and a mark of shame on this country. But what we have now is uh, when you've got these illegal passages is essentially hardened criminals and criminal cartels connected to terrorist networks mm. exploiting our borders potentially for nefarious ends and even if the people on those boats aren't themselves going to be connected to crime, the proceeds the amount of money they're paying to get here certainly are. Mm. Well, that's the problem. And, of course, many of them are not necessarily paying a price to physically get here, but what they're doing is indebting themselves to the people traffickers so that when they do get here, they then have to work off what they owe them. And they end up, end up unfortunately, working in, in, in some kind of nefarious business, some kind of criminal uh, enterprise, or, you know, working in people trafficking themselves. And we also know that the, the, the Afghanistan sort of airlift that didn't work for everybody that should have been airlifted out, means that we're now paying people in Pakistan to put up an awful lot of Afghan refugees in Pakistani hotels, again, charged to the taxpayer. I mean, the, the Home Office seems to have a bottomless pit of money. We also learned this week um, that that North Eye prison down in Bexhill in Sussex, they've, they've now bought for 10 million quid, uh, sorry, 15 million quid, even though it was bought in the previous year by some rather clever business people for about six. Yeah, I mean, the government seem to get this wrong at every single step, don't they? They don't seem to have a credible or valid plan. And it's almost as if they want to tie themselves in knots and not enable themselves to develop a credible plan. 
plan because the minute someone with blue hair and a placard turns up somewhere and, and slow walks in front of a bus or says, you know, this particular type of accommodation is almost akin to being a prison, the government seems to get extremely squeamish about doing anything. They'll talk the talk, won't they, behind podiums and plinths to try and sort of garner support and patience from the ordinary British person watching the news and getting frustrated, but this never gets translated into action. I think there's a lot of pushback from uh, lily-livered types in the Home Office, in the civil service. I think there's a lot of uh, litigation that's taking place, human rights lawyers, immigration lawyers, constantly foiling the government to every step. But at the end of the day, the buck does stop with the government. And I think they really need to just roll their sleeves up and say, we're going to start turning boats around. We're going to create very temporary makeshift accommodation, like it or lump it. You know, you don't have a choice here. If you're fleeing persecution, you should just be grateful, frankly, to be somewhere that is safe and that you're not going to be persecuted, yeah. that you are protected. I'm not saying inhumane conditions, but I think this sort of, I, I remember after COVID, homeless people were put in hotels during the pandemic because it was deemed to be a public health risk to have these people living informally on the streets. Mm. They were thrown out of hotels. Nobody, nobody seemed to protest this. Yeah. Nobody said, we're treating people living on the margins in our own society who have had chaotic upbringings, who have drug issues, yeah. who are ex-veterans. They need respect and they need protection. No, they were treated like rats who are you know, viable to be thrown out onto the street to make space for people coming from other countries. Mm. And I never understand why more regional countries in the Middle East, in the Muslim world, in sub-Saharan Africa aren't doing more themselves. We mm. should be focusing on helping those yeah. countries take in refugees, even if it does mean sending them a bit of money. The end point shouldn't be the United Kingdom. No, it shouldn't. But as you say, you know, Britain prides itself on being a welcoming country, but the the, the, the limit is is fast reaching, you know, the end point because people in this country are sick to death of this kind of constant flow of people. And it also badly affects, does it not, Alex, those who do actually perhaps need a bit of refuge. For example, uh, if people were fleeing uh, bombs in, in, in Israel or in uh, the West Bank and you wanted to house them here, I would say the people's response to that would be actually not today, thank you, because we've got enough people coming already. So the impact on these, um, on, on genuine refugees is is actually going to be worse for them. And also, how do we, Egypt and Jordan get away with saying, oh, we don't want any Palestinians? Because if we said it, we would be the pariahs of the world. Yeah, no, exactly. This is my concern very much because the Muslim world tends to shut its doors to people who they don't see as coming from their particular tribe of Islam or people who they might think themselves are connected to forms of extremism. They don't want them. And so they're happy to see these people coming over here. And you're absolutely right. For those people who are genuine refugees, and my heart really goes out to them because there are plenty of insecure countries in this world. And there are people fleeing terrible things that we would find unimaginable in the West. Um, it, I would like to think that anyone in this country would say just lost uh, you need to be protected and you need a chance but I, I, you know what we have now is that there's the hardening of public opinion simply because as you said the system is chaotic yeah it really is let's talk about Nigel Farage again this morning because I mean just when you thought it was safe to go uh, back into the banking world it turns out that a new report has dropped this morning uh, produced by Travis Smith this is a law firm uh, that was actually asked to do uh, an investigation into what went on at NatWest as if they didn't know um, it now turns out that they've had a look and they've decided that while um, the, the the woman who used to run it, uh, Dame Alison uh, Rose 
did in fact leak information, private confidential information in breach of data protection laws to a journalist that she knew was a journalist, uh, she made an honest mistake and didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, honest mistake. I'm sorry, but actually, when she disclosed the, 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 the you know private information about Nigel Farage's bank account to the BBC business editor, the next day the BBC business editor phoned up to double check about the release of this information, and she said, "Yes, go ahead, say that we closed his account for commercial reasons." When clearly all of the information that he's been able to get to explain what went on behind the scenes shows a very different picture, and it does look like a whitewash, doesn't it? It does look like the establishment in the back banking sector mark their own homework. Mm. NatWest commissioning this particular investigation, this inquiry, they of course own Coots Bank and saying, well, some mistakes were made, but not really anything that big. I mean, the problem that West have here, of course, is if it's proven, and I think it has been proven essentially demonstrably, that they have released private data, that they are debanking people for political reasons, then this is potentially going to impact on things like their share price, mm. um, which could do a great deal of damage to the bank. It has financial repercussions, but it's very good in many respect that Nigel's been the person to put his head above the parapet and raise this issue because I think we're beginning to learn now that lots of people around the country whether it's a small business or a private individual does not have an access to bank accounts and you think in this day and age that is almost a utility it's an absolute mm. obligation when cash is no longer really the main form of currency so many payments are happening online everybody needs a bank account and so it's raising a very important issue it is but what it's also done is is uncovered a rather seamy horrible, nasty kind of underbelly of people in the what we call the lefty establishment now in this country. And you would never have thought, certainly when I was younger, that it would include banks. You know, you always thought banks were full of stuffy men in, in sort of, you know, Turnbull and Asser shirts uh, walking out to, uh, to a private club for lunch. But what we've got instead is a bunch of beardy kind of, you know, Ramonas. Uh, Nigel himself this morning in a statement says, uh, this comes as little surprise to me given Travis Smith, uh, the law firm, has an emeritus chair by the name of Chris Hale, who's a pro-Remain lawyer who once described Brexiteers as racist and xenophobic. I mean, are these people ever going to accept that the people of this country actually voted to leave the European Union? I mean, snobbery is the new Gucci handbag, isn't it? It's, I think what's happened basically in the 21st century is things that were the privilege of those with money, foreign holidays, nice new cars, so on and so forth, uh, you know, smartphones are now accessible to the vast majority of people, be they through uh, reduction in prices, finance schemes, so on and so forth, you know, short haul, easy jet flights to the sunshine. And so now what people have to do to dis you know, to basically uh, show that they are a, a level above, to demonstrate that they are the elite, is adopt these luxury ideologies that I'm not stupid, I'm not a racist, I'm not an idiot. Because the thing is about these luxury ideologies, whether they be things like immigration or Brexit, it, is it those at the very bottom of the ladder who are impacted by it, who are impacted by wage compressions, who are impacted by massive uh, existential changes to the high street in their communities, those who employ nannies or like going to, you know, the barista at their local coffee shop and paying five quid for a latte, uh, those who are at the top of the ladder who own businesses, who actually get huge dividends from being able to compress the wages of those at the bottom, think that, you know, the, 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 the sort of 
trappings of globalization all very wonderful. And so the way in which they are able to distinguish themselves and those at the bottom is adopting essentially this new form of snobbery, which is veiled in a, a sort of faux morality. Yeah, it's absolutely dreadful, ghastly. Um, so let's hope that uh, she doesn't actually walk away, Dame Alison Rose, with the amounts of money that she could walk away with. Surely to God they will oh, withhold some of it, because uh, at the moment it looks as if there is no punishment that she's going to face whatsoever. She's going to become a very much wealthier woman over the course of the next 12 months. Um, but one final thing for you, Alex. I don't know if you're in London this weekend, but, you know, I'm slightly concerned about what we're likely to see. We know, uh, basically, that uh, the pro-Palestinian march last Saturday uh, was massive. We also know, I know, just because it happened very near me, that there were a couple of impromptu um, sort of pro protests, one in the Limehouse Link Tunnel, where a load of Palestinian flags were being flown from cars and a load of cars just stopped and honked their horns. Similarly, something happened like that in Tower Hamlets. Um, the police uh, are saying that they're prepared. We've now got Sadiq Khan, the mayor, urging uh, a ceasefire. Let's have a look at what he's got to say. I joined the international community in calling for a ceasefire. It would stop the killing and would allow vital aid supplies to reach those who need it in Gaza. But a widespread military escalation will only deepen the humanitarian disaster. It will increase human suffering on all sides. No nation, including Israel, has the right to break international law. Yeah, thanks, Sadiq. Um, slightly overreaching his remit there, I'm afraid, but, I mean, hardly surprising. And I pointed out to him, uh, there was a ceasefire, actually. Uh, it got stopped on October the 7th by Hamas. Yeah, I mean, where, where was him uh, asking for Hamas to release the 200-odd yeah. captives, the people being held prisoner under Gaza? Because that would probably stop Israel bombing Gaza pretty quickly mm. if the hostages were set free. Where is the condemnation of that? What did he mean when he said no country, not even Israel, can break international law? That sound, sounded to me fairly loaded and fairly unpleasant. And mm. um, what I don't understand is this is the new trendy ideology, isn't it, to be pro-Palestine. No one seemed to bat an eyelid or take to the streets of Saudi Arabia bombed Yemen, nobody seems to be turning out in their tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands to protest political persecution and the treatment of women in Iran. Somehow Palestine is a way that a lot of Muslims who have come to this country get together and say we're going to form solidarity around this issue because it's a them versus us. It's the white Western world as they perceive it, Judeo-Christian world versus the Muslim world. And I find that quite uncomfortable. I'm not saying that everyone part of those protests has that particular mindset, but it's it seems to me a lot of people there are turning up with audacity out of spite because they want to put two fingers up to the West, despite them coming here, living here, benefiting from our privileges and our prosperity, benefit, benefiting from the right to protest. They seem to have all centered around this particular issue to make some sort of greater ideological claim about Judeo-Christian, the Judeo-Christian world versus the Muslim world. And I don't understand why if they're so concerned about their Muslim brethren around in the world. They're not protesting Saudi. They're not protesting Iran. And a lot of these people, I frankly think, when you, you know, if you were to pull any of them out of the marches and give them a sort of blank world map and say point to Palestine, probably couldn't even do it.
No, I think that's absolutely right. Alex, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Looking forward to seeing you on Plank of the Week tonight uh, at 7pm and over the weekend, of course, as well. Alex Phillips Talk TV's uh, very own uh, presenter. She's also back uh, next week with Kevin O'Sullivan as well. Uh, much, much more for us to do throughout the course of the show. Uh, we'll be playing a little clip from Plank of the Week coming up very shortly as well. Uh, but lots of you have been getting in touch and we do want to hear from you, of course, because this is where we get your views. We tell the rest of the world what you think and we try and augment them uh, and amplify them to the powers that be. If you want to get through to us, you know what to do. It's 0344 499 1000. Let's go to the calls now. Sean uh, is in Oxford, wants to talk about Nat West. Sean, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. And yes, sir. I hope you're well today. So yes. I'd like to discuss about debanking. Yeah. Now, I hear where Nigel Farage comes from. The many issues which I don't agree with Nigel Farage, but on this issue, I do agree with him. Debanking has become a big issue for our country. And I feel that having a bank account is a fundamental right for all citizens, all British citizens in our country. And what do you make of the way that this investigation has been done? Because surely to heavens, if the chief executive of the NatWest group, Dame Alison Rose, doesn't know that you're not supposed to pass confidential financial information of customers onto anyone, never mind to journalists, what on earth is she doing in charge of the company? And how many other people don't understand that that is actually against the law? That is against the law. I agree with that. You can't break confidentiality like that, you know, for, for their own political persuasions. Mm. I mean, that's against the law. And, I, and how that's happened, that's why I agree with what Nigel Farage is doing about banking issues. Yeah. I just don't understand how you can break the law like that. I mean, that is a criminal offence. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's been found to have been in breach of the Data Protection Act, which is a criminal offence. Uh, she's already resigned, but the, the fact that she's resigned does not appear to have damaged her ability uh, to make an absolute fortune. I believe she's still on the payroll. I believe she's going to benefit from some share options that she's got. And she may even partake in some kind of bonus scheme. I mean, it seems ludicrous, particularly, uh, we'd have to say, uh, because we actually are part owners of the company. I agree with that, Mike, and I feel some of our politicians are not taking action regarding this issue. Yeah. And I feel that our politicians need to really have some conviction or in integrity to solve this issue because everybody should have a bank account. That's the basic need for uh, a, a British citizen. Absolutely right. Thank you very much uh, indeed. Sean in Oxford there. Linda's in Weymouth wants to talk um, about what's going on on the immigration front. Linda, very good morning to you. Yeah, morning. Um, yeah. Yeah, three things. Um, surely people haven't got any papers or passports. Um, they should be sent straight back to France. I mean, if you turn up at an airport with no papers or passport, you're immediately deported. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, don't, they don't lose their mobile phones and stuff, do they? No. Well, sometimes they lose no. their phones as well. They just chuck them into the sea. Because you know what? When they get here, they get given a new one. Oh, do they now? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah, once, um... they've, once they've sent the TikTok back to their, uh, their mates from wherever they've come from uh, to say, yeah. oh, come on in, the water's lovely. Absolutely no problem at all. You'll land on the beach. They'll give you a new phone. Uh, they'll give you a package of, uh, uh, of stuff to look to eat. Uh, they'll give you a blanket. And they'll put you in a coach and take you to a nice hotel where you can uh, comfy, comfy yourself down and with some nice clean sheets and a couple of fluffy pillows. Absolutely disgusting. I know. And it is. The thing is, um, who's paying the RNI? Is, is the government paying them or are people still giving their hard-earned money? 
Well, I mean, unfortunately, there are some idiots who still continue to give their hard-earned money uh, to various places which uh, are... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Actually aiding and abetting all of this, but that's another story. Uh, listen, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Linda in Weymouth there. You can have your say, of course. You know what to do. 0344 499 1000. Coming up next, though, what are our European neighbours, in particular the French, up to? Uh, they've said they're going to start kicking migrants illegally uh, arriving in France out of the country. And also Emmanuel Macron's been in the Middle East. Uh, he says he wants a bit of a ceasefire as well. We'll see what's going on. Coming next. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV, the home of common sense, of course, the place where you get the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Now, uh, here in the UK, police are clearly fine with Islamists waving black flags and calling for jihad on the streets of London because, of course, as the police say, well, jihad doesn't always mean holy war. Absolutely not. And that's not really an ISIS flag. It's just a, a flag of Islamic faith. It might look like one, uh, but actually it is not. Uh, over in France, however, uh, they're taking a slightly more hardline approach because the French interior minister, uh, Gérald Darmanin, uh, banned all pro-Palestinian pro protests because they, he said, are likely to generate public order disturbances. Now, we've got a big weekend coming up. We've also got Remembrance Sunday coming up very shortly, of course, as well, in November, where we remember uh, the fallen and the war dead of this country. And there's bound to be problematic situations arising uh, as more and more people wave Palestinian flags, call for uh, the end of Israel's existence. Uh, and it's really, I think, going to get pretty choppy. But let's talk now uh, to our good friend Charles-Henri Galois, the president of Generation Frexit, uh, who's visiting London this weekend. We thought we should get him on uh, to find out why the French have taken such a different approach uh, to us 
in the UK. Uh, Charles Henri, uh, welcome to the Independent Republic. Thank you very much for, for visiting Britain. Uh, did you come on a boat or did you come uh, just the normal way on the train? No, uh, with the flights because I have to. Oh, you to, flew? I, yeah, I have to, to go to Marseille then. So it's ah, okay. <laughs> well, welcome to Britain. Uh, I hope you got in easily enough. Um, tell us about the French attitude because obviously most of Europe has had much uh, immigration from uh, all, all corners of the world, really, over the course of the last 10 to 15 years, much of it from Muslim countries. You know, here in this country, we've got 4 million Muslims, a much bigger po Muslim population compared to the Jewish population. Uh, you've got a very big Jewish population and a Muslim population, right? Yeah, actually, we've got the first uh, Jewish and Muslim communities in Europe. Right. So the issue that we, we face, actually, uh, you, you have to condemn, of course, uh, the powerful uh, Islamic terrorism uh, which uh, has happened in Israel. But then, now with all the demonstration, some are trying to import the conflict in our countries, mm. both in France and the UK. And it shouldn't be like this. Right. Uh, I think every French or British citizen should condemn the Islamic uh, attacks. Yes. Uh, and then, of course, we have to find a solution for this. Uh, I mean, it's, it's been for decades yeah. that uh, there are problems between uh, Israel and Palestine. but. Uh, it's different. Palestine is not the same now with Hamas mm. than it was b before. So, of course, you cannot uh, mix Hamas with Palestinian people and all civil uh, victims um, are really uh, sad. But we have to find a solution and what we need to do is not import this conflict. And I think that's why Gerald Darmanin uh, chose to uh, ban the protests because some are trying mm. to do... Uh, uh, religion, war yeah, right. inside our countries. And yeah. I think he made the, the right decision. And so is that something that has happened in, in, in practice? Because sometimes these bans come in, but then they have a protest anyway. I mean, are you expecting there to be no protests in France this weekend? That's the issue with Darmanin. He talks uh, a lot, but yeah. then uh, when you look at the reality right. and the action, it does not happen. And mm. what we have seen so far, actually, when it was banned, there were protests, and then you had the judge that broke uh, Darmanin's decision. Yeah. I don't know if this one will be broken or not, but anyway, even when it was banned, you had some demonstrations. So that means that the French government uh, is very weak, mm. and the, the, the people that are demonstrating, even if it's forbidden, yeah. they, they don't care and they right. do it anyway. So right. that's, a, that's a main issue. It means that the French government uh, say is not uh, listened anymore. Right. But the French police seem to be much harder on, on, the, on the, uh, the demonstrators than we are. Here in Britain, uh, it seems as though the police prefer to watch the, the march or the protest and then take lots of pictures and then later they come back and say, oh, well, we might have to go and find these people to arrest them because they don't want to have a riot. They're frightened, basically, uh, of the... Because we had about 100,000 people, I think, last uh, Saturday marching through the centre of London and the police just stood there, didn't say anything. It, even as they were shouting jihad waving these flags, which, although the police said they were not ISIS flags, they looked like ISIS flags, you know, quite aggressive people. You know, by contrast, the Jewish um, sort of protests and vigils were very calm and very quiet, very considered, you know, and they were, they were not moving in a way which would have been seen as in any way provocative. But we expect another big problem this weekend. I think it's total uh, disrespectful behaviour because these people they have been uh, host. By, uh, by the UK, it's the same in France. Normally, they should belong to a country, they should feel uh, British or French. You shouldn't flag, uh, you shouldn't uh, move uh, any uh, foreign flag first. Right. 
And then you have to show respect to the law, you have mm. to show respect to, to the people, and you, you, you don't act like this. And right. it's, a, it's a big issue. And of course, if you, you can say it's not a big deal, but if you are weak, it will be worse anyway, because they, they will feel total impunity mm. and they will do whatever they want. So, so far, you, you have to have a very uh, uh, tough behavior if you want to be respected. Yeah. Otherwise, you're not respected, and this is what you see no, here right now. Exactly. And of course, in France, you have very strict laws as well about Holocaust denial, uh, about anti-Semitism, right? More so probably yeah. than we have. Um, has anyone been arrested or has anybody been in trouble as a result of things that have been said? Yeah, some have been arrested and we have a huge uh, protection around uh, all the, the Jews' uh, temples, synagogues right. and so right. on to, to protect them because, you know, in France, we have... A, a, 500,000 uh, Jewish people who yeah. have a huge community. And you right. say as well, among uh, the terrorist attack, you have uh, 35 French people that, are, that have died because we have uh, many links between, right. uh, of course, Israel people from these this people and their right. families sometimes in Israel. So we have many, many, many uh, Jewish people in France. Yeah. Right. And Emmanuel Macron was in um, uh, Israel this week. Um, he was trying to uh, give the French point of view, I guess, which is similar to the EU, I think, uh, asking for some kind of talks to take place. I mean, in this country, the UK is still a very more hardline supporter of Israel, I think. Um, Macron, of course, says he is, but he wants a ceasefire, doesn't he? No, I mean, I'm more on, on his position. The issue for Macron, you know, the, the traditional, uh, let's say, the goal position mm. uh, was to be quite neutral in order to, to get peace between uh, both, uh, both countries. Macron now try to come back to this position, but first, it's all, I think, which is quite dangerous, an unconditional support to Israel. Mm. I mean, you can unconditionally support civil victims, but you cannot unconditionally support a foreign government mm. because you cannot say, I support you, yeah. whatever you do. Right. So I think it was a, quite a big mistake, mm. and now he's trying to push back. It was quite the same, it was a total disaster, von der Leyen, yeah. who arrived in Israel acting like she was uh, the president of Europe. Right. Well, she thinks she is, right? Yeah, it was totally crazy. Yeah. She has no mandate at all to do right. that. And, and she had a very hardline position. Now they are trying to, to take it, to step back because there are some countries that were not, uh, did not agree with that, yes. Spain and some other. So it's, it's a bit a mess on Macron. Mm. Actually, as he changes his position all the time, he's not listen anymore. Right. So it's more a communication exercise that something that will bring peace to, to the Middle East. Right. Actually, it's more uh, to, to, to see Macron in front of the camera, yeah. but it's we, more like we, it, all yeah. know, we all know it will, nothing will happen with him and none of the actors of the, of the region take, uh, take him really seriously. No, because he tried the same thing with Russia, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, at the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine war, he was trying to be the man it's in the middle. The table, you know, I will stop <laughs> this war, you know, I'm the man that you yeah. need to help you all and everything else. What's the latest news on the migrant front? Because obviously um, you talk a lot, an awful lot about Frexit and, and you yeah. know, uh, whether France can move towards also wanting to leave the European Union. But you also share um, the same problem that Britain shares, too many people coming illegally into the country. Um, only recently, I think it was uh, uh, the French decided to put proper border guards on uh, the south uh, border with Italy, down by Ventimiglia down there, uh, so that you couldn't just walk in. And they're going to try and, and now export and kick out illegal migrants, right? How is, how is that going to work? Actually, the, the EU prevents from kicking out migrants that come to your country. Mm. It's the EU laws, it's totally crazy. 
And it was the same communication, you know, when you, you have seen the images of Lampedusa, when they arrived, Gerald Darmanin was saying, yes. no one will ever come to France, right. I, I guarantee you. Uh, three days after, there was TV show showing immigrants from Lampedusa in Paris. Yeah. So you know that in, in the in the European Union, you don't have any borders. So you cannot, with Schengen area, fight decently against illegal immigration. Right. But even legal immigration, with all the asylum seekers, all the system, Dublin system in Europe, is crazy in France. So that you have it in mind, it's 500,000 people each year that come to France. Right. It's a city like Toulouse. In two years, it's a city like Marseille. And in right. four years, it's almost a city like Paris. Right. How do you want to integrate it's not, it's these not. people? It's not possible, actually. You, can, you no. cannot host them. You cannot integrate them. No. It cannot work. And the issue of mass migration, and actually, we cannot resolve it within right. Europe. You, you've got the, the opportunity and the chance to do it in the UK because you are not in the EU. I know that you have some problem because... Sometimes you've got some politician that will try economically to put yeah. wages under pressure, still trying to, to take some uh, immigrants, but you do have the legal uh, weapons to stop it. Yes. So you, you, you should, be, you should we, be the example in we Europe. Should, well, you should be the example in Europe stopping it. I mean, we talk about wanting to be the lead example in the world about net zero, but not about uh, immigration, which is weird. Uh, <laughs> but listen, Charles, very good to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Charles-Henri Galois uh, talking about... We didn't get a chance to get around to Frexit, but we'll do it again another time. Uh, very, very good to see you. Uh, coming up, uh, is the NHS fit for purpose? I think you know the answer to that question. Waiting list of predicted to 8 million, right? I'd say whatever else is going to go wrong with such a useless organisation. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We've got loads going on and we're going to be talking very, very much about the NHS coming up uh, in the next hour. Let me just do a few quick tweets and texts that you've sent in to us. Uh, you can reach us, of course, uh, on Talk TV, uh, on Twitter, on X, if you want to call it that. At IROMG, of course, is my uh, handle as well. Uh, 87222 uh, is the one, one place where you send texts and start with the word talk. Mark in Lancashire says, Mike, the difference between France and the UK is that Macron has a viable right-wing threat in Marine Le Pen, who will take power if he looks weak on immigration. Our lot still think we have no choice but to accept their appeasement of extremist ideologies and uncontrolled immigration, but that will change in the future, I think. Angus in Yorkshire says, Mike, I fully expect another anti-Jewish demonstration over the weekend with outrageous illegal chanting, placards and flags and very few arrests. I do wish it was not so in this once great country. And then he uh, issues a long weary sigh. And Andy in Essex says, Mike, with 80 knife-related homicides alone in London this year, could Mr Sadiq Khan call for a ceasefire in his own sphere of responsibility? I think that's right. And then finally, Ian in York, Mike, I agree with Alex Phillips. All this crap from the Met about jihad, the threat for councillors and votes, etc. to Starmer, the continuing exile and death threats to the Batley teacher, all point to a slow, insidious Islamification of society, of British society, which shows great tolerance towards an intolerant ideology. And I think, unfortunately, that's what people are beginning to talk about. People are beginning to say, this has all gone on for far too long and it's time we put a stop to it. And I think that's what we're going to be talking about here uh, on the Independent Republican Mike Brown for some 
time to come. Uh, as we will be probably about the NHS, because the NHS waiting list uh, has been a sick joke for years now. Uh, the Health Foundation, uh, which is a, a think tank, reckons it could hit 8 million by summer next year, even if there are no strikes. And if the strikes do continue, the list could be another 180,000 higher. Uh, what we know uh, is that junior doctors and consultants have been on strike quite a lot this year, sometimes at the same time. Uh, they're having more meetings, apparently, with the government at the moment. But if they haven't resolved their dispute by November the 6th, which is only a week on Monday, there are going to be more strikes. I'm joined now by independent statistician, our favourite statistician, in fact, Mr Jamie Jenkins uh, from Welsh Wales. Jamie, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. How are you doing? Yeah, very well indeed. Very well. Um, this comes as no surprise to me because you and I both know, and, and you know in Wales where the NHS waiting lists are even worse than they are here, um, there's absolutely no end in sight for, for people getting seen uh, on the NHS because there's simply um, not enough proper people doing proper jobs in the organisation. Um, only just this week, Carol Sikora put out a tweet suggesting that it was a bit of a mistake under the problems that they've got at the moment to start advertising a job for some kind of diversity champion for about 120,000 quid in some health trust in England. Oh, no, Mike, we've, we've had plenty of these diversity jobs. And remember, because there's different trusts across different parts of England, they all seem to want these kind of diversity roles. But... The, the problem that you're talking about again today, Mike, we've talked about it in the past. You will be talking about it in the future. It's pretty much at the hands of the last 20, 30 years worth of government. So Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, was Health Secretary for a while. And we saw this coming in a way. If, if, you, if you look at the data, as a statistician of where I am, we've got a huge number of people who were born just after the Second World War, Mike. They, what you call the post-war baby boomers. Now, they're all hitting about 75 76, 77, 80. And we know that the number of people who need healthcare, kind of the percentage chance of you going into the NHS increases quite high when you get towards 80. So they have this huge number of people coming through. But have we done anything as a, you know, as a government in the UK, knock on effects to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland to prepare for this? Mm. Absolutely not. And, and they're now talking about an NHS workforce plan for the future. But you can't just magic doctors and nurses overnight, GPs overnight, Mike, no wonder the NHS waiting list is going to get worse. Yeah. You know, you could say it's not Sunak's fault because this is, you know, David Cameron, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, all those politicians before him who haven't put the plans in place. So it's a difficult one for him. But, yeah, this is no surprise, Mike. Well, do you know what? I actually take a different view to that, Jamie. I say uh, this has nothing to do uh, with Tory austerity cuts. It's nothing to do with Tony Blair uh, uh, putting uh, a huge debt mountain on back of uh, the private finance initiative to build hospitals. It's all about the people who work in the NHS who don't know what they're doing. You know, because you've got this huge burgeoning organisation. I think it's one of the biggest organisations in the entire world. At one point, I was told that only the Red Army employed more people, you know. And in the end, they've got 200 billion quid a year, and yet they come somehow run out of money every year. And every, every single winter that comes along, I'm just waiting for the crisis to, to be announced, you know. Uh, oh, the winter crisis is coming. Uh, another 24 hours to save the NHS. Year after year after year after year, they waste all the money they get given. They hire more people than they need to do non-clinical jobs. They allow doctors and nurses to work in the private sector at the same time. You know, somebody needs to take a grip of this organisation and fix it because it ain't working. And it's not the politicians' fault. No, no, I agree with you on that, Mike. I think what, what you've hit the nail on the head is that, yeah, all this money goes into the NHS, but how much of it is getting on people that you would want? So 120,000 diversity officer 
is not going to be saving lives. You know, you can get paramedics, you can get ambulance drivers to do those roles. And then you look at the number of working days as well. It's not a seven-day NHS. You look at GPs, Mike, if you want a GP appointment. You know, I was looking at the stats on the GP appointments that came up yesterday from NHS Digital. They even put on there, there was 21 working days in in the month. Well, if you want to really get a grip on all of the health problems, why aren't they working every single day? Why aren't we getting enough people? You know, you... You talk TV doesn't switch off on the weekend. No. Mike, why do the GPs? Well, exactly right. Well, nothing does. This is my point. You know, whenever I've come into work at a weekend, uh, which I used to do a lot more than I do now, you know, I walk past Guy's Hospital every day uh, when I park my car, I walk to the office. At the weekend, you would think there was literally nobody sick. There's no ambulances in sight. Uh, there's literally nobody standing around waiting uh, to go in. There's nobody on wheelchair uh, duty. There's nobody um, visiting because there's just no people, almost as if, is, you know, there isn't anybody going in and out. There's a, a sort of skeleton staff. They call it when they go on strike, you know, a Christmas Day service, i.e. no service at all. And it's just incredible to me that they operate in this ridiculously antediluvian manner as if we're living sometime in the 1950s. Yeah, and the thing is, Mike, Starmer did the recent Labour Party conference and he's reiterated what he said, you know, many times over the last six to 12 months, looking at the polls, looking at the bookies, mate. Uh, Mikey's pretty much odds on to win this next uh, next general election. And he said recently, you know, in the last 12 months, that Wales is a blueprint for what you will do across the UK. And the something you've already raised there, Mike, if you look at the NHS waiting lists and percentage of people who've been on that waiting list for a year, because obviously it's bad news if yeah. you're on there for one month, two months, three months, over a year, you know, you've been sat there waiting to see somebody for that treatment. In England, it's bad. It's about 5.1% of people on the waiting list have been there a year. In Wales, Mike, it's closer to 20%. So yeah. so is Starmer the, the answer? I think no. I think what you've yeah. said is a complete rip-up of what the NHS blueprint is, complete overhaul of it, less of these diversity jobs, Mike, mm. more ambulance drivers, more yeah. paramedics, more frontline people. You know, a diversity person in the NHS at a senior level is not going to fix you. Yeah. That needs to be stopped. Yeah, also more of an actual uh, friendly attitude towards the customers of the NHS, i.e. the paying public, because everybody goes on about, oh, it's free at the point of use. Well, it's not free because they tax you in order to pay for it. So let's forget that it's free. Uh, but rather than telling us all that we should be healthier so we don't have to trouble the NHS during our lives, they should be actually just helping people to get better when something bad happens to them. But, you know, you say it's more like 20% there uh, in terms of the people waiting. They've got some obsession with the number 20 in Wales because uh, uh, they're now making everybody drive at 20 miles an hour. And there's a magistrate who's come out this week to say uh, he doesn't want to prosecute people anymore because it's too embarrassing. Oh, Mike, the, the Welsh Labour government are making us a laughing stock, pretty much. Yeah, he's quit because he's, he basically said that this 20 mile an hour policy, and if he has to start prosecuting people for going, you know, two or three times over, you start ending up in court when you tied up the points. He called her a sledgehammer to crack a nut. And Mm. and our climate change minister was talking this week, Mike. Uh, She said that she drove from South Wales all the way to North Wales and the 20-mile-an-hour policy had no impact on her journey time. She actually cited the main cause of any disruption was uh, flooding and climate change. Now, why is the climate change minister driving from South Wales to North (laughs) Wales, Mike, when we got an entirely good train service? That right. the Welsh government own. You just can't make it up, Mike. These politicians, where are they getting them from? And if Labour Party in Wales is a blueprint for the rest of the UK, Mike, 
you can have lots of these politicians getting elected into Westminster. Yeah. So, you know, good luck, I think, to England over the next 12 to 18 months, Mike. Yeah. Well, I mean, good luck in parts of London driving as fast as 20 miles an hour because the congestion zone uh, doesn't seem to have stopped the congestion. In fact, if he's done anything, he's made it bleeding worse. But, Jamie, good to see you. We've got to run. Thank you very much indeed. Coming up in the next hour, as we approach Remembrance Sunday, I'll be speaking to veteran campaigner Simon Weston. Do not go anywhere. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Once we've figured out where I'm going to be, uh, you can exactly tell where I'm going to be. Uh, I know exactly where I am and what I think, and I know that you do as well, so we'll be taking more of your calls coming up in this hour. The World of Woke will be here as well, 0344-499-1000 is the number to get in touch with us. Uh, but we want to hear from you as well about the NHS, because I know many of you are often calling me and getting in touch uh, to tell us about an NHS operation that's been cancelled, sometimes more than once, treatment that's been delayed, there is no way that this government or any government can get to grips with this uh, ridiculous situation unless the NHS themselves can sort it out. So get in touch with us all the usual ways. The socials are all at Talk TV. And on the phones, of course, 0344 499 First, though, let's get the latest headlines from Emily Rose Adams. Good afternoon. A United Nations official says Gaza is being strangled, claiming food, water and fuel are being used to punish more than two million people as supplies run out. Six lorries carrying medical and water purification supplies have arrived in Gaza, with more trucks on the way, but aid workers say it's not enough. And it comes as the Prime Minister's announced that UK border force teams are in Egypt to help get around 200 British nationals out of Gaza. The Israeli military has confirmed the number of hostages being held in Gaza is 229. Now we're going to move on to our next story. Let's move on to our next story now. We're not going to have our clip of our guest that we were hoping for there. Police hunting for a man suspected of shooting dead 18 people in the US state of Maine have searched his relative's home for the second time. Robert Card, an army reservist, is said to be armed dangerous and on the run. A boat he owned is also said to be missing. His neighbour, Richard Goddard, says it's hard to get to grips with what's happened. It's never, it won't be the same. Nothing's going to be the same. I feel so bad for his father, what he's going to go through, his, the rest of his family. You know, it's, it's not their fault, but it's going, to, it's going to fall on them. There's no getting around it. It's going to fall on them. Nigel Farage has called a review into NatWest, which found serious failings over his treatment a whitewash. It found the main reason the former UKIP leader's account with its private arm Coots was closed was because it was unprofitable, with his political views being supporting factors. It's estimated the number of people living with dementia will double in the next 17 years. A study by University College London forecasts that 1.7 million of us will have it by 2040 putting it down to widening inequalities and unhealthy lifestyles. Graham Sunderland is a dementia campaigner and his mum has the condition. She couldn't like touch her nose, um, putting a seatbelt on, just feeding herself. Her speech started to go away, now she can rarely say a word. Um, her mood, she gets very upset, very scared easily. We're being warned that 8 million people could be on the waiting list for non-urgent treatments by next summer, even without more doctor strikes. 7.75 million are currently on the list. And a report by the think tank The Health Foundation says chronic shortages of NHS staff and funding are partly to blame.
And Wilco stores are set to return to the high streets before Christmas. The discount chain was bought by a rival store in the summer and its new owner is opening up to five shops, with the first two confirmed in Plymouth and Exeter. It comes just weeks after the retailer shut its doors, leading to the redundancy of almost all its 12,500 workers. That's the latest. Now time for a look at today's weather with Joe Wheeler. Times Radio sponsors Talk TV Weather. Hello there. Well, it's an unsettled picture in the days ahead. We're going to see showers and some longer spells of rain. In fact, we're already seeing the showers and they're circling around western areas, whereas we've got an easterly drift, which is bringing rain into eastern Scotland, precisely the place that we don't want it. Uh, and that rain's going to continue possibly another 100 to 150 millimetres over the next few days. Elsewhere, though, sunshine and showers. Some of those showers could be quite sharp and thundery. Temperatures not particularly spectacular for the time of year, ranging from around 10 to 15 degrees Celsius. That's 59 Fahrenheit. This evening, the rain continues over Scotland. We also see rain returning to eastern coasts. Through central areas, the winds fall light and we like to see mist and fog forming there. Showers elsewhere. In fact, those showers really pepping up over parts of the southeast. And again, we've got a yellow warning there where we could see between 50 and 70 millimetres of rainfall. And then as far as Saturday is concerned, the rain continues over these uh, eastern and northeastern areas. Still, those showers down towards the southwest. Sunshine and showers elsewhere until later in the day when we start to see some further rain coming in from the southwest and temperatures about average for the time of year. Times Radio sponsors Talk TV Weather. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, the one place where you get the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We're edging ever closer to November, of course. The clocks are going to go back uh, this Saturday night, so you might enjoy an extra hour of sleep. But on Sunday, the 12th of November, the National Service of Remembrance will be held at the Cenotaph uh, right here uh, on Whitehall in London. Starting at 11am, the service will commemorate the contribution of British and Commonwealth military and civilian service men and women involved in the two world wars uh, and later conflicts, of course, as well. But one of the things that's uh, going to be different, of course, this year uh, is the situation regarding the streets of London. I've been talking about this throughout the course of the show. Uh, we've seen these pro-Palestinian demonstrations going on. The people organising those have said they're going to continue to organise them all the way through the rest of the year, as long as the conflict continues uh, in the Middle East. But here to discuss this great occasion and the launch, of course, of Poppy Day uh, and the historical significance is British Army veteran Simon Weston, CBE. Simon, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us, Simon. I've got the poppy on here. Obviously, um, a lot of talk this week about uh, whether the poppy being biodegradable is uh, is a move with the times or whether you need to really do that or not. My view, it doesn't really matter what they make out make it out of as long as people buy them and they continue to do so uh, in huge numbers, right? Absolutely, Mike. Um, it's gone through seven or eight different variations and changes over the years. Um, and people have even taken to wearing wreath poppies. So I don't think it makes a great deal of difference. It's more about why you're wearing it and you're wearing it because you want to remember but also pay tribute and respect to those that sacrificed. You know, um, for those of those people who served, like myself, who got injured, 
we kind of carry our remembrance every day. Um, but I don't mind that, and a lot of my friends don't mind it in the sense that the battlefields and the graveyards are full of people who'd love to have our problems and love to have our uh, our constant reminders that we served. Mm. But, you know, um, it was a privilege to serve, and, and I was privileged to serve along some of the best people I've ever met and will ever meet. Yes. And, and you were, of course, um, in the Falklands conflict when um, an awful lot of people lost their lives on, on both sides of that uh, divide. I mean, the, the conversations that are had now surrounding all sorts of things are probably quite confusing for those of us like you and I uh, who think about winning a war uh, as, as something that needed to be done. And obviously you can have regrets about uh, the opposing numbers that fell on the other side. But this is about the British uh, and the Allies, rather than about everybody, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, we, we can only deal with what we can deal with. Um, but we should always pay respect to those on the opposition um, because they were sons, daughters, mothers, uncles, aunties, the same as our guys. Yeah. Um, but we didn't know them. And, uh, you know, the, the people that we have, that we remember are still close to us, you know, and we still see families. Um, I still go to events where the families and the friends and relations still attend. Mm. So, you know, we, we have to be mindful of, of what priorities we take. And I keep saying this to my children, you know, sometimes you just have to prioritise. You may have emotions about every aspect of life, but sometimes you have to prioritise. Mm. And um, th this is what we have to do. This uh, 12th of November, the 11th of November, prioritise the people from Britain and the Commonwealth and, and from other allied services, you know, America, uh, to, to respect them for their sacrifice. Yeah. Because it's hugely important. You know, we, we fight for a better cause. And, and sometimes people might not agree with it. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, service people are paid to do a job. We're not paid for our opinion. No. We can only have those afterwards. Well, isn't it funny, you know, because, um, again, you and I grew up in a different time uh, than the people growing up now, but everybody's got an opinion on everything now. Um, you know, you literally can't move for opinions. You know, you just switch on the television, there's somebody you've never heard of spouting off about something or other. You've got social media, everybody's got a view. I mean, I took my own kids for the first time, uh, both teenage boys now, um, to Normandy to see the Normandy beaches and the D-Day landings. And it was an incredibly moving experience, not just for me, but also for them, because I said to the oldest, who's now 19, I said, you would have been here. You know, this is where you would have been uh, in that uh, time in the 1940s. Um, and, you know, I know that it's, it's probably a bit of a hackneyed old thing to say. I made them watch Saving Private Ryan the night before, which gave a pretty good view of, of, of what actually happened. And it's amazing how little has changed, you know, like geographically of uh, on that part of Normandy. Then we went to, to, to the cemeteries and saw the numbers of, of war dead. And it's I, I say to anyone who hasn't seen that, you must go. If you've got children, you've got to take them. Absolutely. Everything's about education, Mike. And if we don't educate our families and if we don't educate the young and mm. the, the younger generation, how are they ever to learn? Um, I went to, to Belgium a few years ago now and uh, I was surprised to find that the battle lines that the Germans used then were the battle lines that many other nations had used to fight over over five, six hundred years previously. Yeah. So not a lot changes in that respect. But what we mustn't do is forget. Mm. We mustn't forget that 
that these people suffer and they die whatever war they're in. But if we do keep removing the history and the education from young people, how are they ever to learn about the mistakes that the previous generations made? Mm. You know, we will continue to fight and make more mistakes. And you've only got to look at the globe right now and look at the conflicts, the major conflicts that are going on. Um, And all this is because... People won't talk. People mm. won't move. People are intransigent. People are stubborn. People have set their stall out, and that's the only way. It's my mm. way or the highway. Mm. And at the end of the day, people will die, all for the sake of people at the top who are, what, building empires, yeah. filling their boots with stolen, looted money in many cases. And, mm. um, you know, we, we have to get to a realisation that Young men and women die in these conflicts, and there's always, I hate the term collateral damage, which is the civilians. Mm. They're the innocents in all this. And you've only got to look at what's happened, you know, in the Middle East. Innocents have suffered for other people's political and, I don't know, monetary ambitions. Uh, And it's frightening. It's absolutely frightening what's gone on. Whatever started it, Mm. whatever's going to finish it, at the end of the day, people are going to die. And... We've got to stop it somehow. You know, how we do it, I'm not a politician. I'm not paid to do that. It's above my pay grade. I wish I was in a position to do something about it. Mm. But it's horrific. And seeing seeing all these sad images, um, it's just awful. And as somebody that's been through conflict, somebody who's seen horrific things and things that I've never repeated to other people, Mm. um, it's, it's unsettling. It's unsettling because you know there's a bigger picture and it could get worse. Yeah. And that's what's frightening. You know, yeah. I've got grandchildren and that's what's frightening for me is, you know, where does it go from here? Yeah. Yeah, and it is a recurring problem because, as you say, whether it's political or whether it's driven by some ideology or whether it's some hatred or other, which there is sometimes because sometimes war is unavoidable, um, uh, as it seems to be at the moment between uh, Israel uh, and Hamas. I mean, there is not any kind of sign for me that that is going to go in any way away uh, anytime soon because I can't see how either one of them who can't seem to uh, exist with the other on the other side of the wall, if you like. I don't see how that can ever be resolved. But I'm just going to ask for people to call in as well, Simon, just before we carry on, because um, normally we do a, a thing called the Veterans Voice here at this time of the day, uh, and at the moment we're not doing it this week just for one reason or another. But we will be taking calls from uh, veterans as well, because a lot of veterans listen and watch uh, Talk TV, um, and they want to say to say their their piece as well. But you're quite right, Simon, to to, to raise that question. The number, of course, is 0344-499-1000. Because I think not enough attention is paid to veterans sometimes in this country. And I'm not talking about veterans who are down on their luck or, or veterans who are homeless. We know that that's a problem. But in terms of just what you've experienced and what you know and what you've seen and what you would say to people they should avoid doing, you know, I'd like to see more... Um, uh, kind of advice being sought from people like yourself, um, from governments, you know? It's amazing, Mike. You know, um, veterans become very popular around about this time of year with politicians. Um, and then after November, you know, the, the Remembrance Weekend, maybe for a week after, uh, the build-up, we're important. But then we just pushed on the back burner. But there are many, many groups that have a, a similar shout on that one. We all get, 
we all we all get sort of taken for granted. But we're a, we're a vote winner for a while, mm. um, you know. And uh, things have to change. We have to give more respect to those people who who work for the betterment of our country and for our people. Um, and, and again, you know, some people may not agree with this, but at the end of the day, their rights and freedoms were hard fought for. They only have the the right to their opinion. They only have the right to voice that opinion in a in a very undemocratic way in some cases, especially yeah. when you see some of the demonstrations that have gone on in London. Yeah. Um, you know, they only have that right because people like myself, many, many thousands of others, millions of others who have served, fought for those rights, who suffered for those rights. Um, you know, so, you know, don't take it out on the veteran. No. Don't take it out on the veteran. We do our job. You know, it's down to others who aren't in harm's way to do theirs. And if they don't do their job, then other people suffer. And if they take too long to do their job, if they prevaricate far, far too much, then what happens? We end up with war. Mm. There is no appeasing anybody. You cannot appease anybody. We've seen it time and time and time again. When you appease people, they take advantage to arm, to resupply, to build up their, their force to then go and wreak destruction on whoever it is mm. that they've got their, their sights targeted yeah. on. And, um, you know, we, we have to be more decisive. There's one thing in this world that we do lack hugely, and that's really good leadership. Yeah. And leadership is what's called for right now. Because, you know, we look across the pond and, my God, all those 450 million people, and we see them with the leadership they end up with. We look at our lot... And look at the leadership we've ended up with over the years, not just what we've got now, but previously as well. And, you know, and, and look what we've got to look forward to. Um, we need decent, honest, strong leadership. And dare I say it, a lot of people might not like this as well, but have we had anybody better than, than Baroness Thatcher at the time? Mm. And people, again, may find that controversial, but when she was good, she was brilliant. And when we went to war, she was everything we needed to yeah. have. She she cannibalised the whole British military and sent as much as she could to the Falklands. Yeah. And and we were fortunate, very, very fortunate, to come out of that uh, as the guys that won. Yeah. But there was no victory because there's nothing victorious when you have to go to war. There's yeah. nothing glorious or glamorous. You know, you, you see the walking wounded that are hidden from, from sight many of the time. And, uh, you know, when you see the suffering that goes on in hospital for many, many years after the fighting has, has gone quiet, all the guns have silenced, there's nothing glamorous in it, yeah. you know. But the one thing that we all treasure, all veterans treasure, are the memories of all the people that we served with. Yeah. And this is why the poppy is so, so desperately important, because this is about them. This is about their families. It's about my family, the suffering they went through because of me. You know, it's about all of the veterans and all of their families and their children, their great-grandchildren. My best friend at the time died on the Sagalahad, and he never saw his son born. So this is as much for young Andrew as it is for the older Andrew, who I knew, who made me laugh no end of times. Um, you know, and I was just running up to him for one last laugh, really. Um, but I never got that chance to take the mickey to pull a prank on him. Um, I just wish I had, and yeah. maybe he might have been out of harm's way and survived. Incredible. 
Um, Simon, as ever, so eloquent. Thank you so much for, for, for putting it in those words and, and speaking so well, because you always have done. And, and you know, I take my uh, hat off to you. I would say I would salute you, but that's kind of an insult because I was never in the armed forces. But listen, thank you, uh, Simon, very much for talking to us. Um, and thank you for alerting us to all of those things that you mentioned. And why? This is the thing. Uh, Remembrance Sunday is, is, yes, a very important time of the year and, yes, a very important time to think about all of the people like Simon uh, who gave so much and, for some, who gave their lives to protect us and to create the world in which we live. And let's face it, uh, a country where an awful lot of people want to live despite where they were born. They want to come here and live here because of what we created. And it's kind of ironic that some of those people who have come here... Uh, don't want to celebrate some of the things that we are very proud of in our history. Now, uh, we want to take some phone calls on this as well, because I think this is important, uh, very important, particularly uh, to the listeners and the viewers uh, of Talk TV. 0344 499 1000 is the number to call us on. Uh, let's get Peggy, who's in Essex. Hi, Peggy. Hi, Mike. How are you yes, doing? I've just, oh, good, thanks. I've just been listening to Simon. Every word he said, I endorse. And yeah. the thing is, when you think that the last two wars supposed to be uh, home fit for heroes. What did they come back to? Everything was bombed out. We had rationing until 1954. Mm. We lost our dad, our uncles, their brothers. And what sort of country? All the old people who went through those last two wars built this country up to give it away, yeah. to give it away without a bullet being fired. And it makes my blood boil to think we can't look after them veterans, but we're looking after all them young men who've left their families and come over to this country, young, fit men, mm. and they come over here and bloody sit about and do nothing. Mm. It absolutely makes my blood boil. I know. It's absolutely incredible. It's, it's as, if, as if we've got everything backwards now. And we've even got um, places in, uh, in our schools where kids are not taught to be proud of our history. They're not taught uh, to be proud of what happened before. And as Simon put it so eloquently there, and Peggy, thank you very much indeed for that call. Uh, we'll take more of calls like that, of course, between now uh, and one o'clock when Julie Hartley Brewer is up. But let's not forget, you know, as Simon Weston said, nobody revels in war, nobody glorifies it, nobody who's been involved in it ever wants to say uh, that it was great because it isn't great. And everybody knows that. But sometimes it's necessary. How about this from Karen in Taunton? She says, hi, Mike, could you please pass on my massive respect and thanks to Simon for his service and sacrifice. This remembrance, I will be remembering my granddad who served in World War II in North Africa. He did make it back and lived to a ripe old age, but I thank him for his service. Andy in Woolwich says, Mike, what a fantastic person uh, Simon Weston is. I'm 61, so I do remember uh, the Falklands. He talks so much sense with compassion and knowledge. And Cyril says, Mike, my granddad and dad both served in two world wars. I missed national service by 12 months. I was brought up by these two who instilled in me something they gained from their experience. And Richard, who's a veteran, says, what people have forgotten is the service personnel uh, and veterans have defended the right that gives the right for the youth of today the right to demonstrate. And that is the point, isn't it? And I think the youth of today who do wish to demonstrate, I think ought to be a little bit more respectful. And I hope they are, because come uh, Remembrance Sunday, which is in a couple of weeks' time, what I do not want to see is any form of disrespect around that day, any form of disrespect around the Cenotaph, any form of disrespect uh, around Whitehall, uh, the statues that are there and the memorials that are there, uh, including the Cenotaph, but, of course, many other ones as well. 
And I think we deserve better uh, than to have our politicians and our police in particular allowing that kind of behaviour to go on in the name of free speech, because it ain't, I'm afraid. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We want to hear from more of you. We've got time to take your calls between now and one o'clock. But coming up next, uh, we're going to talk rugby because the Springboks are up against the All Blacks. South Africa and New Zealand clash this Saturday in the Rugby World Cup final. Uh, we'll discuss that next on Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.